Hello and welcome to Asia in Depth. I'm Matt Schiavenza. In this episode, what may be the end to one of the most interesting chapters in recent Asian politics. On February 29th, following a week of intense jockeying for power, Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad was ousted by Malaysia's king and replaced by Muhyiddin Yassin, a veteran nationalist politician. But Mahathir, who is 94, seems unwilling to go down without a fight. He has threatened a vote of no confidence against Yassin when Malaysia's parliament reconvenes on March 9th. A contemporary of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew and Indonesia's Saharto, Mahathir Mohamad is a towering figure in modern Southeast Asian history. Trained as a physician, he has been active in Malaysian politics since before the country became independent in 1957. He first served as Prime Minister from 1981 to 2003, and during that time he played an instrumental role in driving Malaysia's economic development. It was something of a shock when he returned to power at the tender age of 92 in May 2018. That September, Mahathir delivered an address at Asia Society New York and then sat for a conversation with former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who now serves as president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Their conversation touches upon a number of issues central to Malaysian politics, from domestic corruption to the country's relationship with its neighbors. Rudd began by asking Mahathir how he would reform Malaysia's civil service. Well, we were a colony before. Unfortunately, so are we. <laughs> Fortunately, the British. But we were in jail as well, so it's different. <laughs> well, you beat my record. <laughs> anyway, the British left uh, a reasonable number of people who are familiar with administration. Yeah. And we took over after independence quite easily. And we followed the same uh, uh, practice that is found in the UK. Uh, that is that uh, the civil service should uh, take orders from the elected government, but only with regard to the administration of the country. Mm. Uh, but what happened, of course, under <coughs> the previous uh, prime minister is that the civil service became totally subservient to the uh, elected government. Uh, they were prepared to even commit crimes, obvious crimes, uh, because they were ordered to. And this, of course, was not good for the country. Uh, for example, uh, the reports made against Najib was put in under Official Secrets Act which means that the public cannot read mm. even the uh, Public Accounts Committee's report. And this is uh, wrong because uh, the, those reports constitute evidence, and hiding evidence is criminal. And yet, the AG was prepared to hide under this Official Secrets Act. So we find that we could no longer trust the administration uh, now, the process of trying to recover is uh, very tricky because we need people with experience, but the people with experience were the culprits. Uh, so we need to have... Uh, <laughs> not all, though. <laughs> Our ambassador here is OK. <laughs> but uh, very many of them. Ambassador, you're safe. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I, I think uh, the, it's e fairly easy for them to go back to the old pattern. 
of uh, being administrators who will take orders from the elected government, but those orders would be limited to administrative matters, uh, not to carry out something that is illegal. I agree with you, um, PM. I mean, the British got many things wrong over the years, but Whitehall and the professionalism of the civil service has been one of their great strengths when we've sought to replicate it in our respective countries. But I see, of course, if there is anything bad, they would report uh, over and over again. But uh, the social media allows us to com com uh, connect with the people and tell them and respond to whatever it is that the government says. Uh, we find out that uh, if the government says something that is uh, wrong, for example, uh, they call me by a funny name. What's uh, that, Prime Minister? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all Prime Ministers get called by funny names. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the social media responded very quickly and rejected uh, that, that assertion. And there are many other things that uh, uh, were done. One particular case was when the Prime Minister, Prime Minister said he doesn't eat rice. He eats uh, this uh, South Africa. Yeah, well, you know what it is. <laughs> but that is. I don't know what it is. What is it? <laughs> yeah, this green coming from South America, oh, which is about 25 times more costly than rice. Oh, I see. That was the said, for the he, attack. When yeah. he said that, of course, the response is oh, well, you can afford. The people down there cannot afford even to buy rice because the price of rice has gone up. Yeah. So the social media help us a lot. That's really uh, important reflection in terms of the criticism and the praise of social media in all of our democracies. But for political parties who don't have cash as king, uh, it's pretty fundamental to getting your message out. Now, Prime Minister, we were talking before about beyond politics in Malaysia uh, some of the continuing challenges you have in internal security. Would you like to elaborate on that further? Well, uh, we are 60% Muslim. Hmm. Fortunately for us, uh, Muslims in Malaysia are not extreme uh, in their views or in their practice. But we have a Muslim party, an Islamic party, and they tend to resort to um, Islamic reasons for what they call Islamic reasons for whatever it is that they uh, did. Even though what they did is against the teachings of Islam, they still claim that it is uh, the Islamic thing to do. Uh, we have to counter that. And to counter that, you have to also know your religion. You will have to tell them that, look, what they're saying is not correct because the religion or the Quran says a different thing. Mm. So we counter not by saying, oh, now it's modern times, uh, you know, you can practice all those things. That wouldn't uh, go down well with the Muslims. But when we point out to the Muslim people in Malaysia that what the Muslim party is saying is completely contradictory to what is in the Quran, then we are accepted. So we have been able to uh, reduce the support for the Islamic party and uh, they uh, could never win uh, to become the government at the federal level, though they may win at the state level. Uh, 
the other thing is, of course, uh, Malaysians now through again through the social media uh, gain access to teachings outside the country. Uh, so quite a few uh, Malays, Muslim, have uh, left the country to join ISIS, and uh, uh, some of them have been killed. But this is a small minority, and if we catch them before they go, uh, we have to uh, teach them again what actually is the teachings of Islam. So um, in terms of returning fighters from um, Syria uh, and from elsewhere in the Middle East, I mean, Indonesians have a challenge, you have a challenge, we have a challenge with some of our Muslim communities in Australia. And so your strategy of countering militant Islamism or, or, or violent extremism, you see this as a big priority for your government for the period ahead? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, there is still a law which enables us to detain these people, uh, no, no charges against them, but just detaining them and trying to uh, disabuse their, uh, their beliefs. Uh, tell them that it is not actually, not Islamic, is even against the teachings of Islam, uh, which uh, they, what, uh, what they were doing. And to a certain extent, we managed to uh, convert them back to the uh, uh, general beliefs of the country. Good. Now, PM, how are relations going with the neighbours? Um, we had the Singaporean uh, foreign minister here last night. I know you've always had a colourful relationship with, uh, with Singapore. <laughs> Not as colourful as your relationship with Australia, but, uh, but, uh, but tell me, how are things going with the neighbours? I see uh, Lee Sien Long has been chatting to you recently. How's it going? Well, whether we like it or not, uh, Singapore is just next door. It's very close to us. <laughs> in fact, a big number of the people in uh, Singapore are Malaysians. They find it, uh, well, better to live there because their incomes are much higher than in Malaysia. But uh, we still have uh, issues that we need to settle. Uh, among the issues would be the the price of raw water. Uh, way back in 1926, a long time ago, the price was fixed at three cents per thousand gallons of raw water. The British did that. <laughs> yeah, they insist that they should pay three cents. Now, three cents cannot buy anything at all. So, but this is the cheapest source of water. And uh, for Singapore, of course, if they try to desalinate, it costs a lot of money. Yeah. So we have been trying to revise the price, but uh, uh, we have not been successful. And there are also other issues uh, between us which have not been settled. So we will continue to talk to them. We'll not go to war with them. <laughs> I think there's been... We're well past that in our history, so... Uh... Uh, now, the, the rest of the neighbourhood, um, in ASEAN, you have been a major figure in ASEAN over the years. My own view of ASEAN as uh, an outsider has been, despite many people criticising it for being weak, it's been, uh, in my view, a huge strength in the region uh, in turning former adversaries into partners. Uh, it's not just uh, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, but 
former communist and currently con communist Indochina. And it, and it works. So give me your sense of ASEAN's future, given the current challenges. ASEAN uh, has great potential. Uh, the population of ASEAN is about 600 million. Mm. It's about half that of uh, China. Although they are poor, but still the numbers count. So we feel that if we can um, uh, open up our countries to trade uh, with these uh, 600 million people, ASEAN itself will grow. We've tried uh, to set up uh, heavy industries, uh, allocating to each uh, ASEAN member one industry. Uh, however, that did not uh, happen. Uh, Malaysia did. Malaysia and uh, Indonesia set up fertilizer plants, which are very useful. But the other states somehow or other couldn't get on with uh, implementing the, 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 the industries that is identified for them. But still, uh, the fact remains that trade within ASEAN, between ASEAN countries, has grown. Um, a lot of our, our trade is with ASEAN countries, mm. uh, although now we, we, we trade a lot with China and also the rest of the world. Malaysia is a trading nation. We, we trade with everybody, irrespective of their ideology or religion. We trade with them and we want to maintain friendly relations. Uh, sometimes there can be some problems, but we believe that all problems can be resolved through negotiation arbitration or a court of law. So, so far that has worked out uh, in the ASEAN countries. Uh, it was set up actually to avoid confrontations. Yeah. That was what happened initially. Mm. But uh, we felt that confrontation, wars, will not benefit anybody. So ASEAN has been a very peaceful regional organization for a very long time. And it has survived. Many other regional uh, organizations have failed or have faded away, but uh, ASEAN has remained. And I think uh, one of the problems now is that uh, we change leaders. At one time in the, in the early days, uh, the, the leaders were the same. They meet Kwan uh, Yu, myself, and uh, Sohatlo. Uh, we know each other, so we can always uh, sit down and talk as friends. But now, of course, um, because we want democracy, we have to change leaders. And each time we go, we meet strangers, and it takes time to uh, work with strangers. We're going to take a short break here and talk about the Asia Society Policy Institute, a think and do tank tackling the major policy challenges confronting the Asia Pacific. Led by former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, the Institute brings about changes that incorporate the best ideas from top experts in Asia and works with policymakers to implement these ideas and put them into practice. According to the University of Pennsylvania, the Asia Society Policy Institute now ranks in the top 2% of think tanks in the United States and globally. To learn more, check out asiasociety.org ASPI. And now let's get back to Kevin Rudd and Mahathir Mohammed. Democracy can be troublesome. Yes, yes. I've said so Good, many times. Good, but troublesome. <laughs> the, um, 
You've just mentioned uh, China as a significant economic partner, probably now the major economic partner of Malaysia. It certainly is for my country, and I think uh, most countries in East Asia. You've recently been to Beijing. Uh, I've looked carefully at uh, the negotiations of various contracts between the Chinese and, uh, and Malaysia under the previous government. You've um, uh, reviewed a number of those. A number are continuing, and some have been, uh, as it were, shelved. So before we get into the bilateral relationship, in Beijing you met Xi Jinping and uh, with Li Keqiao. Uh, give me your sense of Xi Jinping, the man that you met, uh, as he is a man with a vision for his country. Um, more than any other Chinese leader uh, since uh, Mao Zedong, Xi Jinping has a much stronger uh, 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 belief in nationalism in making China a great country. So he comes up with a lot of ideas, including the One Bell, One Road. And he is uh, pushing China to become the, the great industrial country that it, it can be. Already, they have made tremendous progress. And they are very rich, because uh, their people are very good in business. And uh, now, the world is their market. So they are able to produce almost anything uh, that others can produce. Uh, maybe later on, even airplanes uh, would be produced by China. And uh, they, Xi Jinping is someone uh, nationalist to the core. He wants to uh, build a greater China. So he sometimes uh, he may rub off uh, wrongly on other people, but. For him, China must be a great power. Of course, given your vast experience as a Malaysian statesman uh, and a regional statesman, the, uh, you would have met uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, in your earlier time as uh, Prime Minister. Uh, have you made any reflections or observations about the similarities or differences between Xi Jinping and Deng Xiaoping? Well, Deng Xiaoping was leading at the time when China was very poor. He came to Malaysia. At that time, I was a deputy prime minister. Uh, he wanted to ask about how Malaysia progressed. Mm. So the prime minister asked me to have a chat with him. Uh, he asked all kinds of questions about uh, development. At that time, China was, uh, was not yet industrialized. Uh, some of the questions I could answer, some like, uh, how many tons of steel do you produce? I had to confess. <laughs> I didn't know. It's a very Chinese yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> but all the time he was focused on developing uh, China. Yeah. And it is he who changed completely the system yeah. uh, to allow more uh, capital to be used for development. But uh, Xi Jinping is inherited a China that is almost fully developed. Mm. I mean, it is a developed country, though it is still uh, considered to be a third world country because of the uh, per capita income. But China has got uh, more modern facilities like high-speed train and the like than most other developed countries. And he wants to make China a great country. So he's working on, he's uh, far more uh, dedicated than uh, uh, 
On the bilateral relationship between Malaysia and China, uh, would have been a big focus of your visit in Beijing. Uh, what opportunities do you see? Uh, what constraints do you see for the future? We see uh, rich China as a big market. 1.4 billion people, even with a small income, would still be a big market. So we can sell things to China, uh, huge amounts of things to China, including raw materials and the like. Uh, at the moment, we are exporting some manufactured goods uh, to China, electronics and all that, but we also receive some of their manufactured goods here in Malaysia. Generally, China provides a big market. It is also a source for cheap uh, products, now of high quality. Initially, their motor vehicles were not of high quality, but now they have mastered the technology and they are producing good quality cars and they are cheap. And a lot of things that they produce would be very cheap. And in fact, uh, most countries would ask China to produce the products that they have uh, invented. So in a way, China is helping to keep prices low in almost the whole world. And of course, uh, ASEAN has had a um, long discussion, sometimes disagreement, sometimes confrontation with China over the South China Sea. Um, and this is a complex matter. The previous government of the Philippines took China to the International Court of Justice. The determination was delivered by the ICJ in favor of uh, the Philippines. Um, how do you see uh, the South China Sea evolving uh, in the context of ASEAN-China relations? Well, it all uh, is about the strength, the power of China. I mean, Malaysia has lived with China for maybe 2,000 years. We have been trading with them, collecting jungle products to, in exchange for lacquerware and the like. Um, but uh, they have not uh, tried to conquer us. Uh, of course, because the China, South China Sea mentions China as part of its name, uh, China claims that it is uh, part of China. Uh, it's all right for them to claim. Uh, we can't go to war against them because they claim. What is important to us is uh, passage of uh, ships, uh, vessels through South China Sea and the Straits of Malacca. Uh, for us, the sea must be open because uh, we trade a lot. We, uh, Malaysia, Malaysia's trading is very big and uh, we need the sea. So long as they don't disturb the passage of ships, we are, we are okay with, that, with whatever claim they may make. Because we don't agree on the basis of the claim, but uh, what can we do? We are a small country. Malaysia, Malaysia, Malaysia states have always been very small. They have always learned how to live with big neighbours. We used to send uh, silver flowers, gold flowers to them. <laughs> And we survive. Yeah. I wonder how the Singaporeans would reflect on that with you. But, uh, <laughs> we'll come back to that later on. The, um, you've also been uh, talking in recent times about the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, One Belt, One Road. Uh, what's your view of China's grand strategy there and how it affects Malaysia and Southeast Asia? Yeah, before, before China 
adopted this new ideology of theirs. I have actually suggested that China build a railway line from China to the West, but building bigger trains with bigger, uh, wider tracks. I pointed out before that um, when the demand for oil grew in the Far East, ships were built which were bigger and bigger until they were almost half a million tons. Uh, but the trains have remained the same size. Uh, the modern technology should enable uh, bigger trains, longer trains to be built, and that will speed up movements of goods and, and people across uh, cent uh, Central Asia. Uh, but I didn't talk about, about the shipping part of it because I thought that as far as shipping is concerned, they were already be building big ships, big tankers and all that. But uh, the idea is not new to us. We have also suggested before that we should have a train that links uh, Kunming in the south of China to Singapore. Already the line is there but it is narrow gauge and it's not quite suitable, but still it provides a good communication uh, between China and Southeast Asia. Uh, so these are not something, it's, uh, new ideas. These are ideas which um, Xi Jinping uh, now translate into one belt, one road. He's not only thinking about the land route, the old Silk Road, but also through the sea. And of course, China needs a free passage of goods to and fro uh, in, in the sea as well as on land, because China must depend on raw materials coming from outside. There's been some reaction, including in Sri Lanka, about um, uh, too much debt associated with uh, One Belt, One Road uh, projects. And we've followed the debate about the port in Sri Lanka. Um, what's your own view about, uh, about that? Uh, I know you've had some reflections on it in terms of the level of prospective debt which might be associated with some of the bigger Chinese infrastructure projects in Malaysia. Yeah, in the past we developed Malaysia without borrowing too much. Uh, we know that if we borrow and we cannot pay, it puts us in a very difficult position. But uh, this the last government uh, was uh, seems to like big projects, costing a lot of money. And uh, they were the ones who, Malaysian leaders were the ones who proposed. Uh, maybe they were urged by the Chinese, I don't know. But anyway, it was the Prime Minister who suggested the high-speed rail, as well as the East Coast Rail and uh, also LRT, MRT in Kuala Lumpur all of which uh, cost billions of dollars, which we could not afford. Uh, we should not uh, go into that, uh, into this, but the worst thing to happen is that these projects depended almost entirely on borrowing money and borrowing large sums of money. So the fall is with the Malaysian government. Of course, the Chinese contractors, if you want to give them a job, a big job, they will take. And if you cannot pay, then you have to face the penalty for not paying. So you we... Get the asset going. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so we, th we think that uh, we are negotiating now, not because of China's uh, mistake 
or false, uh, but because of uh, our government entered into, um, uh, started a project, projects which we cannot afford. We should live within our means. We were able to develop Malaysia quite well before without borrowing huge sums of money. We've been talking about uh, one great power called um, China. Uh, we're now in the, uh, the bosom of another great power. It's called the United States. Um, how's it going with the Trump administration? <laughs> well, uh, we didn't feel the opposition in those days were not quite happy that Trump received uh, the uh, corrupt prime minister of Malaysia. We thought uh, people should at least avoid seeing him, but uh, he met Trump and he, uh, in his usual way, he offered to bribe Trump. <laughs> he wanted to buy airplanes and all that, and even to give money to the United States. I mean, it's ridiculous. Malaysia is poor and is trying to help the United States, which is about the richest country in the world. But uh, that cash, is... Cash is king. <laughs> cash is king, yeah. <laughs> That's what he thinks. By now, I think he realized that cash is not king. So that was his kind of relation. But we are, at this moment, we have not uh, proposed any uh, proper strategy or ways of uh, dealing with the United States because we are still trying to figure out what is it that the, Prime, the President of the United States wants. Because sometimes he changes his mind three times a day, and that's a bit deep unsettling for us. I could take that conversation in many directions. But uh, on the, you mentioned before that uh, Malaysia uh, is a great trading nation in history and the present. Um, and of course, we're now in the midst of an unfolding trade war between the United States and China with some capacity to affect the global economy, given the size which that bilateral trade represents as a proportion of global GDP. Um, your thoughts on uh, how this may evolve uh, and your broader thoughts on, let's call it, uh, the free trade rules under the World Trade Organization. We believe that wars are not productive, whether it be the usual arms-based wars or these trade wars, it's not productive. In the end, both countries will have to pay a price. But unfortunately, other countries which are not involved will also have to pay a price. Uh, of course, uh, in the US, we'll apply sanctions. Uh, and we, when it does this, even countries which had no problem with the U.S. have to obey and are not trade with the countries that has been sanctioned by the U.S. Uh, we hope that this will come to an end very quickly and uh, we will be able to regain in, in time uh, after the damage caused by the trade war. That'll do it for this week's episode of Asia In-Depth. You can listen to more episodes by subscribing on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify, and keep up with all things Asia Society by following us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. I'm Matt Skiavenza. See you next time.